Hello and welcome to Philosophy Voice, a podcast from the Center for Ethics at the University of Pardubice, Czech Republic. My name is Patrick Keenan. I'll be moderating today's discussion with the speakers from a recent workshop here in Pardubice. The workshop was called Idealism and Realism in the Human Sciences, Collingwood, Winch, and Beyond. Center fellow Oli Lagerspertz was one of the main organizers, and his research project is called Human Sciences as Cultural Self-Knowledge, Winch, Collingwood, and the Method of Philosophy. It belongs to the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Program. As part of that program, Oli is employed as a researcher at Pardubice University under the Marie Curie Grant Agreement for the year 2022. Let's meet our speakers. Jonas Askog is docent and postdoctoral researcher in philosophy and history of ideas at the Department of Philosophy and Center of Minority Studies at Obo Academy University in Finland. Yes, thanks. Giuseppina Doro is the reader in philosophy at Kiel University in the UK. Thank you. Oli Lagerspitz is docent and senior lecturer of philosophy at Obo Academy University and currently at the University of Pardubice, Czech Republic. Hello. <laughs> Leonidos Silipakos is a lecturer in sociology at the University of Bristol, UK. Hello, very nice to be here. So maybe to uh, get started, you could each introduce yourselves and what you're working on. Uh, Giuseppina, would you like to go first? Uh, okay. Um, so uh, I have I am a reader in philosophy at Kiel, and uh, uh, I have worked uh, for a long time on the philosophy of R.G. Collingwood. And my main interest uh, has been um, in his um, defense of a form of humanistic understanding uh, and also in uh, his conception of philosophy or the conception of philosophy that underpins this particular defense of humanistic understanding. Excellent. Ole, would you like to go next? Right. Um, Yeah. yeah, as you said, I'm, I'm lect- uh, a senior lecturer of philosophy at Orbu normally, and this uh, particular year, this calendar year, I'm working here at um, at um, the Ethics Center in Pardubice. Um, and actually, my project, the, the project I'm pursuing here particularly, um, is to do with uh, Peter Winch and Collingwood, and they are the two two uh, main philosophers that we are covering on this workshop uh, today and we're covering yesterday um, uh, and uh, of course this has all got to do with um, philosophy of the human sciences and uh, social sciences generally uh, intercultural understanding as well and uh, behind this all Wittgenstein is an important background figure I mean, he was, of course, um, a central thinker in, in 20th century philosophy uh, on v- very many different fields. Jonas? Right. Uh, yes. Uh, um, yeah, I'm uh, also, as, yeah, as you said, I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the uh, Center for um, Minority Research at Obakrimi University. And my what I've written most about is uh, the philosophy of history uh, for the last... 10 or 15 years, so I, and my main interest has been in, in Collingwood's uh, uh, philosophy of history. Uh, but apart from that, I'm also interested in what one could broadly call, or 
some people call uh, analytic hermeneutics. So uh, at this, at our workshop now, I, I spoke about um, Jörg Henrik von Richt's uh, philosophy of action, uh, and which and he is a well-known uh, Finnish philosopher. And so, yeah. Nice. Uh, Leonidas? Hello again. Um, as you said, I'm Leonidas Tsilipakos. I'm a senior lecturer at uh, sociology in uh, Bristol University in the UK. Um, my main, uh, well, the main interest of my work has been um, to try and work out some of the methodological issues in the social sciences, in sociology, I would say in particular, uh, with reference to the work of um, Peter Winch, one of the two main figures of, uh, of the workshop, um, and try to really work out what the implications are and um, uh, trying to connect, if you will, the um, entire Wittgensteinian tradition uh, in, in many of its uh, forms to reasoning about um, uh, the social sciences and also reasoning about um, society more generally. Okay, thank you all very much. Um, so the first question I have for everyone is this. Uh, why were Collingwood and Winch important? What is their contribution? So who would like to go first? I can go first if, if, if you don't mind. And, and I'm sure that others will, will, will join in and, and, and um, add to what I've said um, and even conceivably correct some of it. Um, but um, my feeling um, uh, is that uh, the central part of their contribution is um, by trying to sort out the um, logical relations or the, uh, the way in which the way we take an interest in the social world or to put it a little bit more simply, um, our life in common with other people. So the ways we take an interest in, in, in asking various questions about how we live together, uh, about what people are doing, about how people are organizing their action, and so on and so forth. Um, how do those types of questions relate to questions that we ask about um, various natural phenomena, for example? So in a way, their key contribution is, uh, from a logical, let's say, point of view, is to bring our attention to the logical distinctions that have to do with exactly those ways of taking an interest. Um, and I guess to um, give away what their main point is, um, is that logically speaking, uh, these are um, uh, roughly incompatible, uh, logically incompatible ways of, of, of taking an interest in something. Um, there's a set of concepts that go together with trying to understand human beings, action, uh, institutions, other cultures, and so on and so forth, that are um, uh, logically inappropriate for understanding, um, for example, how um, planets um, orbit other planets or how uh, other astronomical objects work or trying to understand um, cells or any other set of natural phenomena. Well, I'll, I'll build up on that. What I'm going to say naturally builds up on that. Um, and I will say it, I suppose, imp with particular reference to, uh, to Collingwood. Um, I mean, very often people notice that science has made considerable progress, that um, it has answered many questions, that it has made our lives better. Um, and uh, sometimes it is thought that um, perhaps the progress of natural science one day will ultimately answer not only scientific questions uh, about the orbits of the planets, uh, or it will solve technological problems, uh, but that somehow 
it will be able to answer all questions so that somehow the humanities might be threatened by the progress of, of natural science. And certainly a lot of philosophers of mine, for example, think that one day, once we will have a complete uh, neurophysiology, we will no longer have any need for everyday explanations of, for example, hum human action. So I think that one of the reasons why uh, Collingwood is important is because he shows that, I suppose, uh, the kind of questions that are raised within the humanities cannot be answered uh, by, by the sciences, and so that the progress of natural science does not entail that the humanities will therefore wither away. And they will not wither away because the kind of questions that the humanities ask are very different from the kind of questions that are asked within the sciences, and therefore uh, demand, demand different kind of answers. And in fact, we would not be able to answer them unless we uh, adopted different methods that rest on, on different presuppositions. So in a way, what Collingwood does is, is, to, show us, is, to, is, to, uh, is to show us that uh, the humanities and the science can thrive alongside each other, uh, that there is no competition uh, between them, um, and that what is at fault here uh, is a certain kind of philosophical assumption about the ability of science to answer all questions, mm. an assumption that often goes under the name of scientism. So what he does effectively is not to argue, uh, argue against science, it's not uh, anti-science, and that's an important distinction to make, but what he does articulate is an argument against a certain form of scientism according to which um, uh, science will not just sol solve the, um, uh, the mysteries of nature, but it will actually be able to answer all questions, um, including the questions asked by Mrs. Marple. And now, actually, adding to this, um, I mean, of course, we, we should of course, keep in mind that um, Collingwood and Peter Winch um, wrote uh, the works for which they are mostly known uh, in the mid-20th uh, century. So Collingwood's book, The Idea of History, uh, came out in 1946, it was, yes. And, and um, Peter Winch's um, early book, um, The Idea of a Social Science, came out in uh, 1958. I think he was uh, 32 years old when he wrote it. And of course that was a time when um, I think people were generally very uh, optimistic about the possibility of measuring things and applying scientific methods, especially quantitative methods, uh, to society and you know, making society a better place through rational planning. But then gradually uh, at the time people were getting more and more aware of the question, what are we measuring, really? I mean, they, they, were, they got very good at uh, developing quantitative methods, but then the question is, what's the meaning of the, the results? Because, of course, you might say, in the sense that meanings can't be measured um, in the same way as, as uh, populations, let's say. Um, Okay, and, and um, 
Collingwood and Winch are then mainly known for these two books, the idea of history and the idea of a social science. But now, of course, they wrote a lot of other things too. And um, I think one thing we have been trying to highlight in this workshop is um, how uh, the other things they wrote um, are uh, relevant for a better understanding of what what these particular books about um, history and social science um, really were about. So, so it, we we hope to get a better understanding of of, of their entire take on the human sciences by looking at their other work. Yeah, I think uh, connecting to what you said, uh, why they are important, Collingwood and Winch. I think one could it would be profitable here also to contrast with other thinkers in, for instance, the hermeneutic tradition or, say, because there is also <laughs> a lot of philosophers uh, that discuss similar questions. And I'm thinking, for instance, previously to Collingwood also, for instance, Dilte and Troisen and uh, many in the, in the continental tradition. But one of the key things with Collingwood's uh, work, I think, is that he, he understands the question about what characterizes or, or what distinguishes the human sciences as a question about method and not as a question about that the, the, that the, hum, the human beings would need some sort of science of their own, uh, that, uh, that it's... Uh, uh, and I think he, his interest is in uh, what kinds of presuppositions and uh, logical conditions uh, the, uh, that comes with uh, the kinds of explanations and understanding one has in, in, in the human sciences and, and, and the way in which these differ then from other kinds of uh, uh, sciences. Uh, primarily he discussed that then in, in relation to natural science. So, and I think this, this focus on, on question, the question about uh, method as something that dis distinguishes the human sciences is not as clear. It is there and also in other works, but I think it's it, it's it it is um, very it is one of the most uh, important things about about Collingwood's uh, philosophy of history. And he doesn't here think about method as sort of a practical guide to do this and don't do that, but the fundamental idea ideas about rendering reality intelligible that a certain approach. Uh, involves, uh, or that's what I'm thinking. That if if one wants to say something about what would separate Collingwood, and I think Winch very much works on this this idea of 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 of, uh, of, of method that is 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 important for for Collingwood. So yeah. Um, what do you mean by human sciences? For example, in the conference title, what do, what do each of you think human sciences entails? Well, I think one way to, to approach um, what's characteristic about human science is, is precisely the question of method. Uh, because uh, we might say all, probably all science, in some sense, um, aims at explanation. So we, we ask why something happened, um, why something was done. But then, of course, there's a characteristic way in which we address this question when we look at natural events and then there's a, there are ways in which we address um, 
the question when we look at um, human action. So typically, if, if you ask why, 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 why this uh, vase uh, fell from the table, you can say it was knocked over. You might give a description of the uh, forces which, which uh, have uh, made it to lose balance. Um, but now, when you ask about the person, why did what did, why did they, they do this? And of course, you you are looking for the reasons. Um, you are not looking for the forces which uh, move people. Uh, that's basically um, not the question for the human sciences. So, um, in that sense, of course, you might say um, medical sciences, physiology also uh, deal with human subjects or humans. Uh, but of course, quite a lot of this research is uh, biological, so it's not um, about human motivation in that sort of way. So, so when we say human sciences, we are thinking of uh, things like sociology, history, psychology, that sort of thing, ethnology, anthropology, that sort of thing. Absolutely, and if, if I may uh, add to that, I think it's, it's important to um, to, to point out that this isn't uh, an enumeration of, of, of institutional groupings necessarily. Uh, it's more uh, um, uh, giving a sense of, of, the, of the kind of questions that one might ask um, about human beings. Um, um, and I think with regard to what you said, um, um, in terms of the kinds of questions that one might ask and the um, subject matters or the objects, to use that term, uh, that one might ask them of, um, I think it's important to note um, that um, it's a it's a it's a um, uh, it's a misleading or false way of thinking if one were to start from either thinking that they're separate, in the sense that, and I think we might get to that uh, a bit later as well when we discuss um, uh, if we discuss uh, uh, ontological sort of uh, takes on 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 the human sciences, um, but I think. It's, it's, it's important to point out that it's a misconception to think that um, um, you can actually separate um, um, the, um, the, uh, the, uh, the, the particular sort of description of an object from the point of view or from the kind of question that you bring to bear on it. Um, uh, when I'm asking about human motiv motivation I'm and I'm asking that of human beings, the very fact of asking the question shows that I'm thinking of them as, or I'm approaching them as human beings, and conversely, if I were to talk about inquiring about human beings, that would imply that I'm asking them the kind of questions that are appropriate for human beings, and it doesn't make sense to start from either separately because they do go together. Actually, I mean, here you might might say uh, briefly that um, how you look for something shows what you are looking for. Absolutely, yes. So would you say that this leads us to a kind of uh, humanistic understanding? Is that the aim? Th that, is, that is absolutely the aim. So the idea is that the way in which the human sciences approach the, the, the subject matter means that they are focusing on a different kind of thing, or sometimes philosophers speak about a different explanandum from, from the natural sciences. Um, I was thinking that perhaps one way of, of explaining um, what a humanistic discipline is would be by looking at what Collingwood regards uh, uh, 
uh, it, why he thinks that history, for example, is a humanistic discipline. Um, uh, and the reason why he thinks this is because he thinks that normally when we uh, speak about historians, what we tend to mean is not, I suppose, um, anybody who is concerned with the past. Um, but we tend to think of people who are concerned with a certain kind of past. So historians study the Elizabethan period or the Victorian period. They study the Egyptian civilizations or the Mesopotamian civilizations. So in a way, they approach the past um, uh, under a particular description. Uh, they approach it from the point of view uh, of the historical agents. And this approach is fundamentally different from that of, say, a natural scientist, such as a paleontologist, who is also different, uh, it, who is also concerned with the past, but is concerned with the past in a very different way, um, uh, because uh, when a paleontologist uh, examines the fossilized remains of dinosaurs, for example, to, in order to trace their, um, uh, their, their, their evolution, uh, they are not looking at the world from the point of view of the dinosaurs, uh, whereas the historian is looking at the past from the point of view of the Egyptians. So the historian, in insofar as he, uh, he, we are speaking of a humanistically oriented historian, is concerned with the worldview, with the norms, with the practices uh, by which historical agents um, organize uh, their, their lives. Um, so the distinction between, I suppose, the human and natural sciences here, as, 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 as it has just been said, uh, uh, is not a, um, does not imply that there are different things that are being looked at, but that they are looked at in different ways, from different perspectives, from the point of view of different explanatory concerns and, and goals. And the explanatory concerns of, of the human sciences is, is, is to rationalize the behavior of agents, uh, not merely, I suppose, to explain it in the way in which, we, you know, an astronomer explains the orbit of the planets or a tidologist, the, the rise and the ebb and flow of, 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 of the tides. Excellent. Uh, Jonas, do you have a comment? Uh, yeah, I think that... Um Connecting with this, when I said that uh, the question of method is central, uh, because it's not the human subject matter that makes the uh, human sciences <laughs> characteristic, because you can study humans also with other kinds of methods. For instance, medicine is not a humanistic uh, is not a humanistic form of understanding. So, so in that way, I would say that uh, it is. Uh, one could also formulate what was said here that that uh, the the historian or the social scientist uh, invokes a, a perspective of meaning on 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 the events uh, of the past that they they study. For example, they want to show how 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 events or actions came about uh, in light of what the agents believed or wanted to achieve, or or how it relates to also sort of parts of uh, the agent's perspective of meaning that they weren't even necessarily aware of themselves. So you can, you can sort of flesh out a perspective of meaning that's broader than merely the awareness of the agents. And I, and I think that is, that is um, also one of the important questions about, about method here, that it's uh, it, it saying that uh, 
viewing the past from from the perspective of the Egyptians doesn't mean the same as saying that this is some sort of, sort of uncritical form of inquiry where you would say that you, you defer to the to the Egyptians, so to speak. It's still a form of critical inquiry that you 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 are, but you are invoking the perspective of the agents in order to render events intelligible. Uh, but but it's not simply that you you could <laughs> it, it, it wouldn't amount to historical knowledge in that sense if you if you then had mere testimony in which someone says that, well, we did it because of that, because then you would have to treat that also as a piece of evidence when you sort of reconstruct the context in, w- in which you want to uh, explain the events. So, and I, and I think because there are misunderstandings here about saying that one views it from the perspective of the Egyptians, that there is, there mm-hmm. is some sort of relativism or... or and this is something that Winch has been accused of also, that you, that the, the invoking the perspective of meaning of the agents means that he, 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 you have no resources for doing critical uh, history or critical social science. And, and so, so I think that's also an important part here to discuss. I agree with, with Jonas, and, and, and if I may sort of add something else, I think even... There's also a potential for misunderstanding to, to say that one is interested in the perspective of the agent in the sense that we're not interested in the perspective of, of the individual and what they believe necessarily, um, um, or, or not just that, uh, in that a lot of the points um, here could be equivalently made by talking about concepts and talking about the practices that agents partook in. And it's that framework that shows the various connections between um, the things that they did and the institutions that were in place and the ways in which they talked about what they did and the ways in which they thought about what they did. And all that is really what one is trying to get at. Um, the idea is not to suggest that what one is trying to get inside um, the individual skull, um, you know, uh, to, to quote a very nice phrase by, um, uh, I think is attributed to Harold Garfinkel, um, um, uh, there's nothing inside the uh, skull, there are only brains. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I suppose that the point we're trying to make is that um, each form of inquiry has its own explanatory methods and tools. Um, and just as in the case of science, to simply know that the water froze does not amount sci- to scientific knowledge. So in order to have to sci- scientific knowledge, you have to uh, to explain that the water froze because the temperature uh, dropped below zero Celsius. So if you want to explain um, an action or something historically, for example, then you will have to um, connect that with with something else. But the claim is that the kind of connections that are being established in, in, in humanistic explanations are different from the kind of connections that are being established in scientific explanations. Now, very often, uh, the model that is is used to uh, explain natural events is the nomological model of explanation, according to which, uh, in order to explain something, you need to um, subsume it under a a general law and uh, refer it to certain antecedent conditions. And the claim here is that there is a model of explanations in the human sciences, but that is is quite different from the model that is being used in in in, in the natural sciences. So if you you know simply knowing that um, Archduke Ferdinand of Sarajevo was murdered on such and such a day 
it's not historical knowledge. If you want to have historical knowledge, you, you have to know, I suppose, the system of alliances that were in place, uh, what was going on, what was, what was the background, yeah? And, and then you can provide a humanistic explanations of that fact, which is not the same as the kind of nomological explanations that one would use in order to explain why, why the water froze. Because um, in, in some ways, you would have to refer to the kind of treatises which were in place, to certain expectations that country was responding to. Um, uh, and, uh, and that is how, for example, historians explain you know what happened you know are uh, the causes of 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 the first world war but clearly when they are speaking about the causes of the first world war in that sense for example they're not really speaking in the same ways in which somebody is is a, a natural scientist speaking about the causes of the water freezing uh, or um, uh, other such uh, natural events um it, it seems to me that this is pretty incontestable, if that's the right word. For example, you have uh, philosophers of science and scientists, and there's this historical tension. But everything that's been said here, uh, it seems like they, they shouldn't have any disagreement with the claim that there are different kinds of knowledges, different kinds of questions. But is there still a tension between philosophers of science and scientists? I don't think that the scientists are a problem. <laughs> I think it's, it's the... Um, so if there is, I don't think uh, that um, that there is a, a, an issue with science. You know, the problem is about when certain views about the relationship between the sciences are articulated that make the sciences or the answers which are provided by these different sciences compete with one another. And in a way, this has been the, the topic of, uh, you know, of, 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 of this workshop is to to, to try and identify the kind of philosophical assumptions that actually um, lead us to a situation where people think that uh, explanations, uh, everyday explanations of actions conflict with neurophysiological explanations of, of bodily movements. And Absolutely, and if I may add something here, I think it's it's a very um, it's a very it's a legitimate question uh, and 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 um, certainly there's there's an element of 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 justification that needs that needs to uh, to take place um, why um, why insist on this on this really uh, not very particularly recent uh, uh, distinction uh, in a way I think it, it's 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 remarkable that um, people have been trying to to make these points or uh, similar points. Um, over the past at least 200 years. Um, um, and so one might very uh, reasonably come up with the question, well, why this now? Why, you know, how are these points really well, uh, uh, have, they, have not they been uh, assimilated? Uh, and the answer, I think, is that is yes and no. Uh, that there is this conception that somehow we're past these debates um, but the, I think the, the, the reality is that they keep coming back in various sorts of um, um, devious and, and, and less devious ways. Um, uh, and, and they're very much part of not only certain assumptions about uh, philosophical assumptions um, about um, what are really the, uh, you know, most appropriate ways of explaining something, what really counts as having explained something uh, or, or what really should ought to count as a cause of something. 
Um, but they also um, they are also embedded very deeply within the the social sciences in the various ways in which uh, people understand what they're doing. Uh, now they don't call themselves positivists. No one is a positivist anymore, and that's true to an extent. Um, but uh, the conception that um, uh, forms part of this drive to scientific um, uh, understanding, to the assimilation of the humanities and social sciences to the uh, natural sciences is built within the um, presuppositions, if you will, of, of, of sociological inquiry to an extent that it's not noticed that these assumptions are there and they're, and they're, and they're uh, as seemingly innocuous things as the assumption of, um, you know, uh, being a being in an advantageous position to um, everyone else in society because of the existence of a method which is driving knowledge production and that's somehow accumulating uh, and, and these are sort of basic assumptions that are made um, and, and 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 imply if one thinks about it carefully exactly this sort of conflation between the reasoning that's appropriate for um, the natural sciences and the reasoning that's appropriate for the social sciences. If I may add, I mean, in a way, I understand your question. What's all the fuss about here? You know, if you if you want to know the causes of the First World War, ask an historian. Don't ask a theoretical physicist. You know, and you know, there's <laughs> it would seem common sense, and nobody seems to think that you can provide um, a uh, in, you know an explanation of, of of the First World War with the vocabulary of theoretical physics. I mean, nobody you you'd think you know what what's the problem? Excuse me here, but there is a problem, a philosophical problem, because um, there is this expectation uh, from at least some philosophers uh, that um, uh, physics should be able to provide answers to all questions. Um, so there is a, a, an assumption that sometimes goes under the name of the causal closure of the, phys of, 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 uh, of the physical, according to which uh, physical explanation should be able to explain everything. And if they can't, that is somehow presented as a failure of physics. Yeah? Um, so given that kind of expectation that physics should be able to answer all questions, uh, then uh, you know the ideal is that you know a, a complete a complete physics like or a complete neurophysiology will then be able to answer all the questions that that of, of, of the humanity. So so that's why I suppose there is there is a problem um, because of that uh, philosophical assumption about I suppose the epistemic superiority of one form of knowledge. So. Uh, physics wears, if you like, the epistemological trousers. It, it's it's the kind of science that is going to deliver the answers. And somehow, some people think, uh, wrongly, I believe, and Collingwood believes, and Winch believes, that it's not a failure of physics not to be able to answer all questions. It's in the nature of physics to be able to answer certain kind of questions. But once you begin with the philosophical expectation that unless you can answer all questions, that is a kind of limitation of that form of knowledge, uh, then of course the the the, the problem uh, arises. Um, you know, and, and it manifests itself also in the reasons must be causes. Otherwise, they're no good. Uh, kind of uh, idea, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. No. Definitely. And I think it's it's more of a myth 
this uh, I, uh, this thing that this debate is has some is somehow past us that uh, that uh, that the, these the questions aren't uh, part of the philosophical landscape anymore because I would say it's quite the opposite uh, because there's also this project of so to speak naturalizing intentional action which is a project of uh, trying to show that uh, sort of understanding ex- intentional action does not require a, a vocabulary beyond physics uh, that provided by physics or neurophysiology so and uh, and uh, I would say that the kinds of uh, questions that Vincent Collingwood engages uh, and they, what what they want to show is also that this these kinds of projects uh, will misconstrue <laughs> how the very the very concept of of intentional action and what kind of resources one needs to, to understand uh, intentional action can't be provided by the vocabulary of of physics and and neurophysiology so i think that here that the that the argument maybe this was said already but that is for an uh, explanatory pluralism that you must see that the, the, there are different ways of rendering the world intelligible so to speak and and uh, that is also one of the uh, i think one should remember with collingwood's famous book called the the idea of history so it is the it it, it means <laughs> what what history means there is a is a form of knowledge and thought a sort of a, a certain way of rendering uh, reality intelligible and he was interested in the uh, in the presuppositions and 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 conditions of this kind of an, an inquiry so the 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 idea of history doesn't mean the idea of the past that it, this is how you study the past in general but it it's a particular way of understanding uh, uh past reality but also the present and, and future so and i think you know here i think there's an Im- important element in in uh, i think uh, both both collingwood and winch and in the way they look at human action w- which i think is central for understanding you know their their specific take on on action and it's the fact that they um, look at human action more in the light of problem solving rather than in the light of, uh, say, um, conforming to regularities or natural laws as, as you might describe describe a natural uh, process. So so the idea is, I think, which you, I think you can see uh, in many places and many uh, things they write about um, action the idea is that uh, you should uh, see the point of what someone does or says, and you do this by, as it were, uh, recognizing the the challenge or or, or question that uh, this agent was facing, and how, how what they did or said was an uh, was a response to that challenge, and of course this is in a way rather different. Way to way of conceptualizing what action is, because because then you conceptualize it in terms of uh, meaningful situations, which again, of course, requires you to uh, get an understanding of the the context in which certain uh, 
certain situations would constitute problems and, and uh, require uh, certain kinds of answer. Uh, maybe, can I just perhaps latch on uh, what Jonas just said about explanatory pluralism? Um, in many ways, one might say that, um, well, why is this different? Why is this new? So if you look at what has gone on in contemporary uh, analytic philosophy of mind in, you know, in the latter half of the 20th century, uh, there are very few reductivists. So in a way, mm -hmm. the consensus tends to be... Um, uh, non-reductivist um, and uh, and yet so one might say well you know um, what are Collingwood and Winch adding what is it that they have to add to this discussion given that there's plenty other uh, non-reductivists around but if you kind of dig a little bit deeper into the kind of forms of non-reductivism that are actually uh, given on you know that are actually on offer take something like functionalism Functionalism provides a, a just a causal theory of, of the mind. So from an explanatory point of view, it is not non-reductivist. Non, non Something like multiple realization functionalism addresses questions such as uh, it is non-reductivist in the sense that it allows perhaps creatures with a, a different uh, physical compositions that human beings that could have the same mental, you know, the same kind of uh, mental experiences like being being in pain. But it does not, uh, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, it's non-reductivism of, of, of a kind, but it doesn't really um, address the fact that uh, when we sometimes explain an action, we want to explain it in such a way as to show its point. And that to show the point of an action is not to provide the kind of um, causal explanations in the sense of nomological explanations, uh, that that functionalism gives. So, in some ways, uh, the reason why Winch and Collingwood are relevant, perhaps, to contemporary philosophy, philosophy of mind, is is that you know they give us a kind of non-reductivism which is genuinely explanatory pluralistic, and it has a little bit of a spice that really these forms of um, uh, contemporary non-reductivism do not do not have, because ultimately they operate against the background of certain naturalistic assumptions. And if anything, you know, I do remember when I was an undergraduate and I was really interested in the philosophy of mind. And then I was introduced to non-reductivism. And I thought, oh yeah, yeah, into it. And then it was non-reductive physicalism, it was functionalism. And actually I lost interest in the philosophy of mind because I think that they just passed the concept of mind by. Um, so in that respect, uh, you know, for those undergraduates who are looking for some robust form, forms of non-reductivism and they don't want to become ontological dualists, you know, I think that Winch and Collingwood have, have, have something to, to offer by, you know, rethinking the, 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 the problems of the relationship between the mind and the body, if you like, in terms of the relationship between different forms of knowledge and how they can actually coexist. Um, and, and if I may add something here, I think Collingwood has a very nice way of, 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 of showing this in the beginning of, of New Leviathan when he talks about mind and, and, and matter. And he sort of says, mind is to talk, to talk about mind is to talk about the whole person from a certain perspective. And to talk about matter is to talk about the whole person again from a different perspective. But he also goes on to add further in that sort of initial bit that the, the sort of the science that has 
started uh, uh, the hare, I think he says, needs to continue to, to catch it or to put it somewhere differently with reference also to his famous, I guess, logic of question and answer. If you ask a certain kind of question, then that commits you logically to a, to, to, to a certain kind of, of answer as being the answer to that question. If I ask about the human mind in the sense that I'm asking about somebody's uh, uh, motivation for, 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 for doing an action, um, then um, it's very difficult to see how that question can be answered by using a wholly different set of concepts, which is those of electrochemical states in the brain. It doesn't really deliver on, 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 on uh, as a response to um, why somebody painted their fence yellow instead of orange. You know, you're not going to find that answer anywhere in, in the brain. Uh, it might be an answer about the, you know, planning code in, in, in ta- the, you know, that, that exists in, in, in a particular neighborhood or, you know, an answer as to why, you know, what kind of color their neighbor painted the fence, but it's not going to be found in the synapses in the, in the electrochemical description of synapses in the brain. And to that extent, the point about explanatory pluralism is exactly that, that you have to decide what kind of question you're asking, and that logically commits you to a certain kind of response, a certain kind of answer as the answer to that question. These things go together. Um, and to think that somehow we can keep asking the questions about human beings that we're interested in uh, and the questions about society that we're interested in and somehow find answers to exactly those questions through a description of brain states is a logical category mistake of enormous proportion that just goes unnoticed. So we have these two terms, idealism and realism. And why is this part of the workshop title? Oli? Or whoever wants to answer. I mean, you, you can talk about the, non, the, the kind of the idea of realism as, 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 as again, a scientific description of, of reality uh, and... and, and um, you know, and not then, acknowledging the plurality of forms of... And of course, I mean, the idealism thing, I mean, it's also because, um, because of course, both Winch and Collingwood were actually accused of being idealists. Um, I mean, Winch was called an, a linguistic idealist, and that, that was, I mean, which... points to the... Which, which implies the idea that you create reality through your mind and specifically you create uh, reality uh, with language. So in other words, to, to make a caricature of it, if, 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 we talk, if we talk differently about reality, then different, uh, reality would be different. And, um, and of course, it's, I mean, because of course that, that is true in one sense. I mean, it is true in the sense that the social reality of, is different uh, because because it's very much to, to logic and constituted by by how we think of it, how we relate to each other because in the light of these thoughts which we have. So there is a kind of an idealistic core there, if you like. But but if I may, yeah. If I if I may try and mm-hmm. I, I put my finger a little bit on, on some of the of the difficulty. I think mm-hmm. the difficulty comes from wanting to to. to to continue using these um, um, specific philosophical concepts like the world, 
the mind and the world, mm. these kind of distinctions and, and, and reality. So if you say that there's only one reality, you're in trouble. If you say that you know there's not, not only one reality, uh, then you're also in trouble. Yeah. Um, but really, uh, I think the, the, the more sensible approach is really to say um, uh, that um, uh, it's best to characterize what Winch and Collywood are saying beyond this kind of realism, idealism yeah. uh, debate, not because there isn't a way in which somebody might order the concept so that it makes sense what mm -hmm. they're saying, but that because it's difficult not to uh, invite mis misunderstanding yeah. um, uh, in those terms. So I think so, so. I think the simple, um, the simple fact would be that um, the world, the world reality, sort of uh, um, uh, or mind reality, mind world kind of distinctions don't really apply uh, unproblematically. Um, so they have a different sense, and they don't. They're not as serviceable as one actually might think when we're talking about history and historical understanding, or mm -hmm. we're talking about society. Um, uh, so, in that sense, um, th that's one of the reasons why it's easier uh, to to say um, uh, to characterize Winch's position and Hollywood's position uh, without necessarily using those terms. Which is not to say that it cannot be done. Um, uh, and I'm sure um, if one is really patient, um, one can do it. Um, uh, but um, there might be other strategies. Yeah. So perhaps building on that, um, you know, philosophers often ask whether something is real. And then they tend to assume that if it is not real, then it must be ideal. Um, and I think that, um, uh, although Collingwood, of, of course, is uh, often described as, as an idealist, he was writing certainly at, at the tail end of the British idealist tradition, uh, in a way, I think, as 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 just been said, especially in his later work, he he tries to go beyond, I suppose, that kind of idealism-realism divide. In the sense that um, uh, he would say that uh, the question that we ought to ask about the fundamental concepts which structures our forms of inquiries or our way, the ways in which we make the world intelligible, to use the terminology that Jonas used earlier, we shouldn't ask of them whether they are real. We should ask them whether they are fit for purpose. So that when we deploy, say, a sense of because, uh, which, uh, sh which um, answers a question in a humanistic way, in the sense that it shows the point of what is, is being happening, uh, it's not that that sense is more or less real, is less real than the sense of cause or because that is being used in the statement, the water froze because the temperature dropped below zero Celsius. So, so if I say, um, Jonas came here today because he promised, yeah, um, or because he wanted to become famous, yeah, uh, which <laughs> uh, then, you know, I'm showing the point of, 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 of him being here. And Collingwood would say you, you shouldn't ask whether that explanation, that sense of because is more real than the sense of because in the water froze because the temperature, you know, they are, they, they, they are answering different questions, yeah. So in, and in that sense, you know, as as just as has just been said, in a way that, in doing that, I think they go beyond the idealism and and, and realism debate. I think we can safely say that neither Collingwood nor Winch are metaphysical realists. I think we can safely say that um, there are ways sometimes of characterizing idealism that could, you know, that that that, that would still capture it, um, uh, but 
it's probably better to leave that behind uh, and to try and you know and to show that really uh, you know Collingwood would say that you can't really ask for example whether the presuppositions that govern forms of inquiry are true of an inquiry independent reality uh, they are constitutive of the form of inquiry um, uh, but the question as to whether they are metaphysically true yeah, uh, is, in a sense, it's a, it's a nonsensical question. You cannot ask of that which makes a certain kind of discourse possible uh, whether it is true or false in the way in which you can make the ver verifiable claims that those presuppositions enable you to make uh, in, in the way in which you can call those claims true or false. So I, I would agree that probably it would be better to correct, especially... Certainly, in the in the case of Collingwood's his later work, as going beyond the idealism realism debate, and and, and now thinking of this um, contrast between um, idealism and realism, there's there is in some ways a similar or parallel kind of contrast, which I think is quite quite um, well known and and. He, Great heated controversies now in in the social sciences. The the, the uh, contrast between uh, being constructed and real uh, constructivism and realism, if you like, because of course, uh, let's I mean let's think of the question whether let's say parent parenthood is you know biological or socially constructed, uh, and now I mean when we think of it. Uh, I mean, this the, the contrast itself uh, may be unhelpful, but at the same time, of course, there's a lot of things which it also which, which constructivism does help us see more clearly. Now, first of all, if something is con constructed, it means it's built, so it's something which members of society build, which of course doesn't make it unreal. It makes it into something which is created by human effort, and and so if we think of parenthood, uh, it has a biological um, reality in it. But then, of course, it's also true that we don't really understand parenthood in a specific society simply by knowing the biological facts. But rather, of course, parenthood has all kinds of legal implications. It has all kinds of uh, social implications which will be different in different societies and which have been historically different. So in that sense, uh, I think you should say, of course, that all social institutions are in some sense constructed because they are upheld by people who live by them and, and you know, follow the, the, the rules and norms which are implied in them. And, of course, parenthood is a social institution, not just a biological category, but also social. And so, in that sense, you know, we have a we have two aspects of of let's say parenthood, um, the biological aspect, and the social aspect. Now, we don't need to uh, think of this contrast as uh, mutually exclusive, but rather, and the, uh, they are two aspects of a phenomenon which which belongs to society. Yeah, I mean, there I was uh, the question about idealism. Of course, it is. Uh, fact that nobody wants to be an idealist <laughs> and uh, everyone in philosophy wants to be some form of realist 
not in this room, but <laughs> 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 but but otherwise. So uh, I'm just thinking about uh, how how one understands idealism because there is a question, of course, uh, those things that we already said about method, which could be summed up in, in a certain way. That I think it's Mike, Michael Oakeshott that says that method determines subject matter. Uh, which would sort of sum up this question about how you study determines what you study, and uh, and Collingwood had had all, also similar kinds of formulations. That is this an idealist idea that there is this uh, uh, internal relation between the method and what you study because because uh, the the fundamental uh, idea in metaphysical realism is I guess that there is reality out there and then you have different methods of studying it and we, we could somehow compare how well the the method functions for explaining things in reality or, or, or giving us knowledge about reality. So so the question is then that if one has agreed that method determines subject mm-hmm. matter that we have basically agreed on, uh, that is this an, an idealist commitment? or not so you know in a way you have to uh, I suppose you know you have to stipulate how you use your term yeah. instead, mm-hmm. and then you get you, you get clarity um, it, so I, I suppose the, the, the problem seems to be that you know idealism tends to be most often than not identified either with an ontological claim about the nature of what exists is there matter or is there mind yeah so Barclay, in that sense, is clearly an, a, a, you know, an ontological idealist, yeah? or in terms of uh, the kind of the mind causally bringing about uh, reality. And clearly, we would say that certainly in that sense, I don't think that you know, neither Winch nor Collingwood are idealists. So in that sense, they're not. Once, in a way, you qualify idealism in, in, in that sense, and, and, and you're saying that the kind of, um, you know, that the kind of questions that we ask determined the sort of things that we are looking for, and then you know that then I'd be happy to call it idealism, but I don't know how many people I suppose would be willing to do so. Um, uh, I mean, is, isn't really the question um, that is central to deciding this whether it actually makes sense to think of any form of inquiry as presuppositionless? In the sense that, you know, if we think about uh, the example that uh, Oli um, uh, mentioned before about you know, bio- parenthood being biological or parenthood being a social construction, it seems to me that biological understanding too has its presuppositions. Um, so in that sense, the equation of biology with reality um, uh, isn't, um, isn't done in the same sense in which one would like to assert that there are no presuppositions in, in biology, because obviously there are. Um, so in that sense... Um, I think the question becomes, does the question of presuppositionless um, understanding of, of anything, of reality per se, make sense? And I think Collingwood's answer would be that it doesn't. Uh, now, if that makes him an idealist, I'll happily jump in the same boat with him. Mm-hmm. But I think th- this is interesting because in, in an important sense, I would say those who are uh, arguing for they wouldn't call it metaphysical realism, they would simply call it realism, uh, rely on the idea that there are prepositionless forms of knowing the world, because isn't that basically what Moore is saying with mm. his two hands that we discussed, that 
in this case, he's directly confronted with reality. Sort of, there is more and there is reality, and there isn't aren't any pre- presuppositions in between them. So. Yeah, that's right. And I think Collingwood is, I think, is clear about this. According to him, knowledge is something that uh, arises within the sciences. Mm. So, you know, uh, historians make claims, you know, make knowledge claims. Chemists make knowledge claims. Uh, physicists make knowledge claims. But I don't think he thinks uh, of philosophy as making knowledge claims. I think he thinks of philosophy as a kind of second-order activity which... Uh, um, is concerned with understanding the presuppositions within which which make knowledge possible, um, but without those presuppositions, the, the, uh, the, there would be n- no no knowledge. So, um, uh, in in that respect, um, what what was the point that you were? Um, yeah, there are, can be no knowledge because knowledge is something that arises within 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 the sciences philosophers don't you know in, in his understanding uh, uh, help us understanding those presuppositions yeah and tying up to what what Jonas said and what you just okay. said um, uh, Josie um, now we, if we go back to uh, George Edward Moore and his example uh, of direct knowledge I mean he you know he assured he had had direct knowledge of something because he could see his own hands. Um, Now, uh, uh, Wittgenstein said of Moore that Moore wants to think of knowing as a kind of seeing. And and in this case, seeing is really just something equivalent to standing in front of something with your eyes open. So, uh, Moore and basically the realists, at least of that generation, um, 1930s, 40s, um, they um, thought of, uh, you know, the most, they thought that the most important or basic or reliable form of knowledge is the completely presuppositionless knowledge, where you simply stand somewhere and you take in the knowledge. So, so there are no questions, there's no uh, question of uh, presenting evidence. You can't even present evidence because it's direct knowledge. You you see your two hands in front of you. There's no question of you no know, finding evidence for it, of, of proving it. And now uh, for Wittgenstein, uh, quite on the contrary, uh, uh, those forms of knowledge were possibly not knowledge at mm-hmm. all, or at least they were constituted a very uh, dubious kind of of uh, limiting case. Mm-hmm. So in other words. Uh, the cases which Moore and Bertrand Russell probably would have thought of as the perfect form of knowledge. Mm. Those cases for Wittgenstein were just um, dubious, limiting cases. Because Wittgenstein also wanted to think of knowledge in terms of um, an inquiry, results of an inquiry. So I think here um, Wittgenstein uh, is very much... um, uh, on the same page as, as Collingwood yeah, I and, so. and uh, which uh, Yeah, I think that's interesting no. because uh, I think that Collingwood is not making the move that's, that some philosophers make, which say that we our knowledge uh, requires presuppositions, but there is a form of presuppositionless knowledge that perhaps some other kind of being, such as God, may be able to have. 
And I think that what he wants to say is not that, well, maybe there is such a thing, it's just that we can't have it because we have a finite intellect or, or whatever. I think the claim that he is making is similar to that, is that it, it presuppositionless knowledge is, is a misnomer. It's not a form of knowledge because knowledge is uh, internal to form of, of, of inquiry. It arises one certain presupposition because, you know, if you... One of the claims that he makes is that is that unless you make presuppositions, you cannot really questions do not arise. And in fact, it's very difficult to think of a, of a question that doesn't rest on any presuppositions. It's a, you know you can try it as a kind of challenge, um, but if it is true that all questions rise on presuppositions and and that knowledge is something that we acquire once we, it, you know, in, 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 in the attempt to answer questions, then it does follow that there cannot be any such thing as, as, as presuppositionless knowledge because there would be no questions that we would be trying to answer in a way. Related to this, actually, Wittgenstein has this remark where he says, you, you can't actually produce a list of all the things you know. And the point not mean simply that it would be a very long list, but rather th this idea itself is incoherent because as we are, that's no such stable thing as all the things you know. Because, you know, the things you know depend on the questions you are asking and your questions will be different um, um, and they will change. So in that sense, you wouldn't, I mean, knowledge doesn't, you, you can't make your knowledge into a list in that sense. Yeah, and, and, and I would add, uh, coming back to the to the whole construction of presuppositionless knowledge, that um, if one were to survey um, the way in which the concept of knowledge enters into our various practices, um, it, it, it informs our behavior in, in very ways. Knowing something um, informs our behavior in various ways. Being able to, to, to explain it to someone else is part of what we call knowledge. Being able to talk about it, being able to, to act in accordance with that. And it seems to me that it's those ties that are important to the concept working and having sense um, that are severed in the case of thinking of knowledge as presuppositionless, and that makes it into, into a nonsensical um, uh, construction. Can you say something about the conception of ontology and metaphysics uh, that inform Winch and Collingwood's thinking? So, um, first of all, I think it's safe to say that they were both very critical of the idea of ontology as a kind of presuppositionless uh, pro pro production of a list of the things you know or the things of uh, the things that exist in the world um, uh, so they would not I mean for, for, for them and uh, now I know Winch's work better than Collingwood but um, but um, for Winch at least um, the focus would be on epistemology. In, the, in other words, the focus would be on uh, your uh, ways of inquiring, the questions you ask. If I could help, I mean, the, the different ways of making, I, mean, I think the phrase he uses, you know, the different ways of making reality intelligible, even if that's, if that's, so the forms of, the forms of understanding, different forms of knowledge. Sorry, Oli, go on. Yeah, I no, but I think this is really central, isn't it? Okay. Uh, so, so, okay, once more. Um, if you look at both Collingwood and Winch, I think it's safe to say that they were um, really critical of, of the idea of 
ontology uh, as the inquiry of, uh, the inquiry of um, what the world is like and what there is in it as a kind of presuppositionless inquiry. I mean, our normal normal relation to the world is not that we walk around in the world producing lists of things that exist, um, but rather um, Winch at least um, clearly approached uh, the, the question of reality in terms of epistemology, that is, in terms of how we find out about reality, in what ways it's important for us that, that um, things may be real and unreal. And so the way in which uh, different things are real to us um, is as the function of the kinds of thing they are. So in that sense, uh, for instance, you might say the past is real, um, the mind is real, um, moral obligation is real, or they are in real in that specific sense in which we can talk of the past as being real, um, the mind and moral obligation as being real. This is actually a point from Collingwood, yeah. not Winch, but, but which makes a very s similar point um, and uh, his formulation is that um, the philosophical question is not what things are real, but the, the philosophical question is the force of the concept of reality. In other words, what do we mean by reality? And we find out that by uh, looking at how we use the concept of reality. In other words, what is con what we do with this concept and what that concept does with us as well how we react to it how, how it informs our lives that um, it's important for us for instance to be uh, clear about what our relations to other people are or, the, or to be clear to, to make sure that we are not deluded about some aspect of uh, reality. And, and, I'm sorry if I may just uh, and this is this is a perfectly logical point that goes very deep um, in, in the sense that we do talk about the reality of many things in the context of various activities. Religious people talk about the reality that God has in their lives. Um, you can talk about the reality of, 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 of obviously, of, of, of other people for us, and you can also talk about the reality of, 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 of the natural world and so on. And, 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 and I think J.L. Austin also made the point about real uh, very forcefully when he said that real is a kind of a substantive hungry word. You have to specify, you know, a real what. Um, and, and one way of specifying, you don't have to use the grammatical form to make the point, is to talk about the reality of God, where speaking of God being real evokes a certain kind of reality that is logically uh, leading to certain kinds of behavior, certain kinds of questions, and so on. It would be foolish to try to prove the reality of God by taking some kind of uh, instrument of measurement to see whether God is real or not. And that is exactly how the different sense of real shows itself in the fact that different kinds of behavior and measurement and so on are logically inappropriate or appropriate depending on the, the sense that and the force that the concept of real has. Mm. Yeah. Go okay. Yeah, I think, I, I think also that <coughs> one uh, can connect this question about ontology to their views of uh, philosophy and uh, because, I, and I think it's clear in their writings that they are hostile to the very project of ontology, which says in one of his later essays, I don't remember if you remember the title of it, only 
but it's, he says there explicitly that w- what we need to do in philosophy is to get away from the confused project of ontology. Yeah, this is from 1995, asking too many questions. Ah, yeah, yeah. So, but I think uh, the the very idea of ontology of of having some sort of uh, assessment of what kinds of things exist in the world and that the philosopher would be someone who could then uh, achieve such a thing means that philosophy is no longer this, as Colin would call it, this form of second order uh, uh, inquiry, which I think he formulates it, that it it examines and explicates the the relation between thought and its object. So, uh, and because ontology seems to mean that that the philosopher is somehow approaching reality as such and saying what kinds of things there are or can be or something like that. So so this, in a strange sense, also elevates philosophy uh, to one of the sciences, in, in, in a sense, which which that, which both Collingwood and which were uh, very much against. And, uh, and it is no longer this... Uh, conceptual analysis that they associated with philosophy, but rather a, a, a revisionary project in which the philosopher takes on the task of of saying what is real as such, for example. And most people who are committed to a project of ontology say that, well, physics is the <laughs> way to go. That, that, that's, and that, of course, means also that the philosopher has taken on this authority that they are able to judge that, well, physics is The, as real as anything can get, and <laughs> and that is what what reality is, so so to speak. So so I think it, it, I, it's important to say that uh, the, the question of getting away from ontology also relates closely to their views of what what it means to do philosophy. No, no, uh, you know, tying back to what you said and what Leonidas said earlier, um, because Leonidas, you were we were talking, you were referring to God's reality. And I can just imagine, you know, what uh, the kind of philosopher that uh, you, uh, you and us were describing would answer to that. Because clearly, I mean, it is a kind of topic which which will create reactions. And and one obvious reaction from, um, like, a scientistic-minded philosopher would be to say, okay, so now you are trying to, you know, give license to anyone, uh, especially religious people, To, to say it's okay to speak of God's reality. And actually you're giving license to anyone to say anything uh, if they choose to call it real. Um, I mean, that's the obvious reaction yes, that you yes, would get. Yes. Uh, but then again, thinking of what you just said, Jonas, of course, the, the, the central point here is, of course, that philosophy, philosophy is not going to tell you whether God is real. Or whether any any other thing is real. I mean, these things. I mean, the, the question for philosophy is not whether it, you know, whether it's true what this what someone says, but rather the question is, what does it mean to say this? So, in other words, if we speak of the reality of God, if someone speaks of the reality of God and obviously means something by it, then let's see what the meaning is. Let's let's tease out the implications and how they think of it. Um, so in that sense, philosophy is still uh, the untangling of the concept of reality. It's not. It's not the the, the inquiry of what things are real, what are not. 
Yes, and I, I would say, just very briefly, Mark, and I would say that, you know, it, it, it's obvious that a lot of the times our difficulty is exactly that, um, in the sense that our difficulty is grasping the sense of the question rather than uh, our difficulty being something that we really understand and just remains to come down on whether it's true or false. Um, so, absolutely, yes. Yeah, and I think, actually, quite a lot of Peter Winch's work was a work where he concentrated on specific examples uh, on what it means to understand um, some sort of uh, perhaps alien form of life or, or a form of life uh, uh, outside the ordinary ordinary um, ordinary um, uh, life. Or, or mainstream culture mainstream you could culture, say. Right. And, and so and uh, so he was it were just focusing on the fact that very often we think we understand something much more than we actually do. So, so the, the, the first question for the philosopher, when, when the philosopher wants to engage with some uh, puzzling, perhaps puzzling phenomenon, puzzling beliefs by um, people, the first thing the philosopher must do is to make sure he or she actually understands what these beliefs are, and you know, how how they um, enter the lives of those who held, who hold those beliefs. Uh, yeah, I think uh, absolutely. Uh, um, uh, so um, I suppose uh, that what this shows is that the, what the, that there is at work a very different conception of the role of conceptual analysis in metaphysics. So, you know, normally when people speak about metaphysics, they say that metaphysics limbs the nature of being, that it tells us what the fundamental structures of reality are, and in so doing it uncovers the reality behind the appearances. That is a kind of familiar theme in philosophy, uh, which, you know, you find in Plato, you find in Descartes, and it, it, it doesn't really matter um, whether, you know, which sort of school of thought uh, you belong to, that seems to be a kind of, um, you know, constant, constant. Um, I think that, you know, certainly uh, Collingwood has a a very different conception of metaphysics, so the task is not here to uncover um, the reality behind the appearances. So um, sometimes when people do this, they say that, uh, there is, on the one hand, a kind of manifest image, which is our everyday world in which we make our everyday judgments, uh, in which perhaps we explain people by uh, uh, trying to get to the point of, of, of their actions. And then, you know, there is a kind of uh, underlying pictures, the, the reality that uh, might be uncovered by by science, and that somehow we've, we've, we've got to sort of... Um, uh, uh, Join the dots that, that that we have to explain how the how how um, uh, the reality accounts for the appearances, how the molecular constitution of the table accounts for its solidity, how the neurophysiological going on in the mind account for uh, uh, people doing what what it is that they do, and clearly Collingwood doesn't think he's happy to use the term metaphysics, yeah. Uh, he thinks that his metaphysics is a whatever a metaphysics without ontology, because he thinks that its task 
is that of identifying and, as Oli was saying, disentangling the different kind of inferences that we make and that, that we deploy in providing these different kinds of explanations. Uh, he is not interested in ordering these explanations hierarchically, so he rejects the kind of layered model of the sciences that most non-reductivists in contemporary philosophy of mind adopt. And the reason why he rejects it is because he doesn't really think that the task of philosophy is to detect the reality behind the appearances. It's rather to, to show us how we can make the world intelligible in different ways by adopting different forms of expl explanations. Uh, and so his, his understanding of what it is that philosophy does is very different. Philosophy enables us to make these very subtle distinctions uh, between reasons and causes. I mean, he, he speaks in a different way. He, he speaks a different sense of causes or different, you know, but uh, it enables us to uh, to distinguish between different kinds of past, the historical past and the natural past. So that's what philosophy teaches us to do. And actually, what is important here is not to bring this together, but actually to understand that they are apart, not in the sense that, you know, um, that they are uh, separate, uh, but they are that they are conceptually distinct. And, and, and that is what he thinks that uh, that the value of um, of philosophy is. So he thinks that you know philosophy lives on even even after a kind of traditional metaphysics is dead. He doesn't think that this is the end of thinking. That this is the end of philosophy. Um, it's a new beginning. <laughs> so the next question, and uh, maybe I'll start with Jonas, but this is for everybody. Uh, the next question has to do with the workshop each of you presented. So would you like to tell us briefly uh, what you were talking about? All right, yeah, well, I will try to be brief. <laughs> and, uh, I talked about uh, uh, von Richt's, Georg Henrik von Richt's uh, later philosophy of action, which he wrote after Explanation and Understanding, which came out in 1971. Uh, and why this belonged in a workshop on Collingwood and Winch is that I think there are interesting uh, uh, metaphilosophical points of contact between between them, their views of philosophy, and and I explicitly wanted to show by looking at von Richt's later work on action explanation, which is interestingly neglected, if especially if you compare the atten attention that has been he has received for the later work with the earlier work, for instance, explanation and understanding is very much discussed. So I wanted to connect my reading of his later work uh, uh, to a, d a debate about how to understand uh, the triumph of causalism uh, from the 70s onwards in the philosophy of action. And, and there has been a discussion here, which Giuseppina has been very much part of that. Was it so that causalism triumphed over anti-causalism, which was the paradigm in, in philosophy of action before, before the 70s? Was it because of first-order arguments by uh, causalists that they simply sort of defeated anti-causalism and, and that, uh, and that the anti-causalists didn't really have a way of responding to the, the, the causal theory of action, which primarily Davidson uh, delivered and, and popularized late, was popularized later. Or was it that there was a shift in, in metaphilosophical assumptions uh, uh, that the view of philosophy changed at the same time from 
from conceptual analysis to a form of revisionary metaphysics in, in wanting to show that one must give an, ultimately an explanation of acting for reasons must must show uh, that reasons cause action and ultimately at at one would say a, a, a neurological or, or or brain states that cause the action uh, so so uh, I wanted to show by looking at from Rick Slater philosophy of action that that there was indeed uh, a shift in in metaphilosophical assumptions uh, I think that because as you can see his his answer was also very much part of he wanted to show that the question about understanding the real reasons of action so to speak is needs needs conceptual analysis and not sort of revisionary me- metaphysics but also that he provided then uh, first order arguments against the, the causalists and and these arguments I think also uh, connect closely with arguments that were delivered already by Collingwood then uh, and, and it's a particularly a view of of reasons not as mental states but but as sort of one could call it facts but it's it's a difficult concept here but that the, that the agents are, are, are responding to to a world filled with content or uh, what you want to call it already uh, so so it's not that that uh, uh, that uh, an explanation of action must must always refer back to a, a mental state somehow causing an causing an action um, so uh, and th- th- and then I wanted to show that th- this view of, of of reasons was similar to to Collingwood's also and I would say also also winches um, so yeah that's that's the basic outline of of what I discussed and uh, so and so I think these questions that uh, we have been discussing with with Collingwood and Winch uh, have many important points of connection also in in von Richt's, von Richt's uh, later philosophy and he was he was influenced by, by Collingwood uh, that you can see that already in explanation and understanding and 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 he he was also in, in close contact with Winch at several times even if he he, uh, I don't think they were. He he didn't, I think, really ap- appreciate the idea of social science when he wrote explanation and understanding. Even if he he had interesting comments about it, but uh, I think their their styles of writing were also very very different. And so, thank you, Leonidas. Yeah, um, I'll start with the title, which was of the talk, which was. Um, uh, Winch, Collingwood, and the promise of a new form of understanding, um, and, and and the promise of a new form of understanding is really the idea of a scientific understanding of society, of a understanding society via scientific method, uh, and um, the point of the talk was to to argue that Winch and Collingwood offered very strong arguments that this conception is incoherent, that it's an impossible conception, if you will. Um, and uh, I guess some of the reflection that I think is important had to do with um, trying to pinpoint what it is that stands in the way of actually people appreciating uh, that the conception is incoherent. And um, we've referred to some aspects of this um, in, in the conversation so far. Um, one aspect has to do with actually being able to identify this conception behind various current philosophical and uh, social uh, scientific positions, um, which is not always easy to do because it's been assimilated in, in, in some ways. Um, and the other, of course, has to do with getting away from the fascination 
of 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 of, of trying to or argue um, um, based on ontological groundings uh, that supposedly support our then methodological choices, um, uh, which is which is which is why I, I try to. To, to, to point out from the beginning that the notion that we have first to find out what something is like and then erect on that understanding what the appropriate way of studying it is is, is, is misguided because these things actually logically um, um, go together. Uh, and, and the fact that there is a range of interests that we take in human life and in, 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 in social organization and the way we live our lives together um, uh, is really what's driving the questions. And if that's what's driving the questions, then the answers have to be logically um, appropriate. Um, so these are, I think, the, the most important bits. And of course, everything else we've been discussing, uh, in effect, fits into, into, into that problematic. Giuseppina? Yeah, so um, what I was trying to do was to uh, try and show how different um, Collingwood's explanatory pluralism is from what we have discussed, uh, these forms of uh, contemporary forms of, of, of non-reductivism in the philosophy of mind. And the reasons why they are different is because most contemporary forms of non-reductivism in the philosophy of mind uh, tend to operate with a unitary uh, concept of causal explanation. And once they have a unitary concept of causal explanation, uh, they uh, tend to encounter the problem of causal exclusion. So if you have, if you op op operate with a homogeneous notion of causation, of causal explanation, then you know the problem arises: how is it that one and the same thing can be explained by psychological laws and by neurophysiological laws, for example? Um, uh, and uh, I was trying to show that uh, Collingwood's explanatory problem is, is, is very different because, um, uh, so I was trying to show, first of all, that these forms of non-reductivism are not explanatory pluralistic in any kind of significant and meaningful sense because they operate with the same notion of, of, uh, of, of explanation. Um, and secondly, that they encountered the problem of causal exclusion. And then I was trying to show that um, because Collingwood is a genuine explanatory pluralist, um, first of all, he develops a non-reductivism which is more meaningful, which does justice to the, the different kind of questions that are answered by the humanity, asked and answered by the humanities and by the sciences, but also that it kind of dissolves the problem of causal exclusion because the problem, the problem of causal exclusion arises if you are operating with a unitary concept of causal explanation. Um, uh, if you're not operating with, with, with that model, if you think that there are different conceptions of, of explanations that address different questions, uh, then there is no conflict between different forms of knowledge, precisely because they're not answering the same question. So you can have conflict only if two answers are answers to the same question. But if there are answers to different questions, then, then, then there is no conflict. Um, and also, I suppose the paper tried to say a little bit about how the underlying conception of, of metaphysics has, has to change. And the prevalent conception of metaphysics tends to be, tend to be naturalist in the sense that most contemporary philosophers of mind tend to assume that whereas there are different layers of explanation, there is only one of these types, uh, one, one, of, one of these explanations uh, as causal relevance or captures genuine causal, causal relations. Um, 
whereas uh, Collingwood rejects that layered uh, model of the sciences and uh, in in uh, uh, and uh, on the other hand, claims that what we should be looking at are not uh, is not at what explanations captures real causal relations, but rather which kind of explanations is fit for purpose. It really is it, it is fit to answer the kind of question that or to address the kind of questions that that that, that are being asked. Oli, yeah, um, my um, my my. Uh, my my talk had the title um, uh, Winch and Collingwood on Logic in the Light of Published and Unpublished Material. So, I mean, so it is clearly a, a, a project where, where I'm comparing the two thinkers and, and, and looking at similarities. And um, I was then partly using material which is so far unpublished, but which I had seen in the archives or elsewhere. Um, uh, and now, now this particular talk um, had to do basically on, on their, their view on the status of logic. In other words, the question, what kind of a, what kind of a practice is logic? Now, if we think of logic, uh, so on the, on the other hand, on the one hand, we can think of logic as formal logic. In other words, uh, sometimes it's called mathematical logic. Uh, the, 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 um, the kind of activity where you are able to, as it were, uh, create, convert one logical form into another uh, through rules of syntax. And uh, because, because it operates with symbols, actually to some extent you can operate the symbols without Giving, giving the symbols any specific meaning of, without actually reading any kind of content into the symbols Be because the logical constants uh, themselves are, as it were, um, supposed to be constant. Now, on the other hand, uh, by logic you may mean uh, the ways in which uh, people carry out arguments. So, uh, logic in this broad sense would be the study of thinking as thinking, uh, especially focusing on the formal features of thinking. In other words, focusing on ways in which one thing follows from another, uh, one, one uh, statement contradicts another. And now you can, of course, uh, uh, I mean, of, uh, you, usually in logic, um, one, one uh, question that uh, the practitioners of logic constantly <coughs> come back to is the question how 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 best to formalize an argument or a statement because because usually it's a case that um, you might um, formulate it with the same the same sentence in different kinds of ways and then uh, partly of course the way where you formalize it will will affect the way in which you can operate with the science and, and draw further conclusions. Okay, so, so, so for both Winch and Collingwood, uh, the central question is how we are to relate um, logic in the formal sense of an academic discipline to logic in the sense of uh, something that people 
uh, say and do in their um, ordinary uh, discussions. Um, so, um, the crucial point here is, I think, that logic describes thinking, but it is also a model for thinking, so it's not just descriptive. Um, it serves as a kind of, um, kind of uh, object of comparison or a kind of standard. So, in, in one sense, uh, it ha in one sense, logic is compelling. You can't, as it were, you can't, so to speak, um, just ignore the fact that uh, if, if you are saying, saying contradictory things, you can't just ignore the fact that you are contradicting yourself. Um, if you say A, you must say B. So there is a kind of must here. And then the question is, what kind of a must is this? And now, uh, we're just saying that uh, we don't really understand this unless we think of uh, logic not just as the art of producing a typographical pattern and, and converting it to other patterns via rules of syntax, but rather we should look at logic uh, in its use in argumentation. Um, now, uh, I think uh, comparing Winter Collingwood here, I think they were very much on the same page here. Um, one thing that they had in common was, was the emphasis on uh, context. In other words, uh, you can't really analyze a sentence just on its own. I mean, you don't really understand a single sentence taken on its own. And I think we, we very often uh, tend to overlook this point because usually, suppo suppose you just see a sentence written on paper, usually uh, you very quickly figure out some sort of context for it, or you, you imagine a sort of context for it. So, I mean, uh, I think our chief way of understanding sentences is exactly by thinking of plausible contexts for them. So I think we are, we are very quick to, quick to find those contexts, and that's, that's why we are, I think, partly blind to the fact that um, actually we don't understand sentences taken just on their own. So, okay, so, so both uh, Winchester Collingwood, uh, it was a very central point that a sentence as it's, uh, on its own doesn't have a meaning. The sentence in a context has a meaning. Um, uh, now, Winch got this, I think, partly from, from Wittgenstein, or cl clearly from Wittgenstein. Um, uh, Collingwood um, came to this same conclusion in other ways. Uh, of, of course, one, one thing which, which uh, Collingwood is very famous for is what he called um, a logic of question and answer. Um, and the point he made was that um, if you want to understand the sentence or if, if you want, want to understand what someone says, you do it by looking for the question to which the sentence is an answer. So, in other words, if, the, if you know a sentence which doesn't, a sentence which is not an answer to a question, doesn't really have meaning, or or the, the meaning is indeterminate because we don't know what it is an answer to. So, there's just uh, ten minutes remaining, and there are two questions, but I actually think there's just one question because the two questions are: Are there any unresolved issues, or what are 
your future prospects. And it seems like in philosophy, unresolved issues are future prospects. So based on the descriptions that you've given, everyone maybe could say individually how uh, different lines of thinking presented that were presented informed difficulties they've had with their own work, or maybe there's an issue that's uh, still unresolved that now has risen to the top and seems to be the most important. Uh, if, if I may just mention something, that maybe we don't have to talk to that. But, and but, perhaps but, we don't all have to. Yeah, but, but, but I think, I think <laughs> one issue that came up in, in, in some of the questions, I wouldn't necessarily say it's, it's, it's completely unresolved, but it's something worth considering, um, um, w- would be the issue of um, asking a question but not necessarily knowing what one is asking, or at least or asking it in the sense that um, it, it, it is to be specified or uh, at a later point. Um, um, or asking a question that is somewhat complex um, or compound, and 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 I think um, um, uh, the the uh, one example was, for example, uh, the um, uh, you know the question that uh, um, uh, was offered by uh, one of the participants: um, uh, Why has uh, the Russian army been you know has it, why has it under why has it underperformed? Uh, and, and that really isn't a question that uh, necessarily. Um, is asking for one thing as a reason. Um, so, so then it was it was sort of suggested that um, if we're operating with these distinctions between you know um, uh, explanatory forms that belong to to mind versus explanatory forms that belong to matter or or, or, or any such broad uh, brush or high level distinction, um, then that cannot really account for um, uh, for the complex questions that we asked. Uh, and I think it's important to see in this connection that. Um, um, uh, Underlying this issue is the question of what really a logical distinction is. Uh, and I think it's important for Winch uh, and, and Collywood to see that actually it's the practice uh, of drawing distinctions and of, 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 and of, of um, um, acting in accordance with prior ways of acting uh, um, uh, uh, in, in a logical sequence, as it were, uh, that, that, that shows in the life that we that we lead um, what exactly logical distinctions are. These are not sort of abstractions or impositions that need to be met uh, uh, by, by the practice. So the practice comes first, and it's in practice that we draw logical distinctions. And for example, when we're conducting an inquiry as to the state of military operations, um, we know very well the kinds of questions that we're asking and the kinds of um, things that we need to find out to determine whether morale in the army was high or low, or whether the equipment was well-maintained, or whether the strategic decisions were were, were, were well, well uh, informed or hasty or whatever. Um, and it's these distinctions that actually uh, are made in practice uh, that show what logic is. It's not an imposition uh, on the practice. Yeah, uh, just as a short comment to that, I think it was an interesting question. But now when I think about it also, that there are distinctions to be made within that question, that who is asking it and for what purpose? Why has the uh, Russian m- military underperformed? Because if it's, for instance, uh, an engineer asking that, then he won't be interested in, for instance, the morale of the troops or anything like that. He will be interested in, wa- was there enough oil in, in the tanks and wa- wa- did the bar- was the barrel straight and all of these things that he can influence somehow or, or he can help. And, and, and the decisions by the generals and the morals of the troops will be what they will be. But but hu- historians typically, even if they take that into account, the st- standard of the equipment and that, they, they want also to... Uh, relate the question of why has it un- uh, underperformed 
to someone that can be held responsible, so to speak. That it's that it's something about the people acting in these contexts that that they are usually interested in. Was it was it the the the, the culture of the uh, soldiers that they're not taking any in- initiative because they're because for instance what you can do with equipment is never settled once and for all i think uh, so 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 they would be I- interested in in, in uh, i'm not saying that they would not be interested at all in these sort of material factors but but most of the time they're interested in something that you can explain in relation to sort of at least if it's a humanistically oriented <laughs> historian uh, that that you look at decision making you look at sort of the the culture of of the military in a sense uh, in the specific country so my point here is that i think this is an interesting example actually also that that the question itself can be uh, can be specified more than than just the general question uh, even if i think that they're right that it's a good example of something being entangled that there are many dimensions to it so but then yeah. of course the maintenance of equipment itself maybe sloppy and that may itself be you know reflexive of of the moral of, of the group or e- of general e- exactly culture. and yeah yeah uh, so yeah. yeah yeah so it's yeah um i, I suppose it's just a, a slightly different point but um uh, i suppose that the humanities are often under attack um um you know if we look at universities departments you know a school of medicine is growing and i mean it should be should there should be a school of medicine, you know, absolutely but uh, and sometimes people ask, you know, what are they for? You know, um, uh, you know, they don't uh, make refrigerators, and you know, <laughs> they don't, you know, they, you know, they don't improve our lives in the ways in which science does. But I suppose what both Winch and Collingwood show is that they they do a certain kind of work. You know, they answer certain kind of questions, which are important for for us to answer. Um, and and that if we continue to, I suppose, compare them to the science and, and hold them accountable to the st- same standards, then they will always necessarily fail by those standards. So I think what is a fault here is the idea that um, uh, that somehow the expectations which apply to science should apply to the, to the humanities and, and, and what you know, Winch and Collingwood are trying to show is that, you know, that there are different ways of of, of rendering the world intelligible um, and that we should not hold one accountable by the standards of, of, of the other. And indeed, if I may add to that, I think we should hold them accountable to higher standards than science, <laughs> different and higher. Mm. Okay, are there any final comments from anyone? I've just made mine, I feel. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could, uh, connecting with that, what you said, the, the value of the humanities, uh, which wasn't, which would, could be explored further uh, in the future, is this question of, uh, which was important, I think, to both Collingwood and Winch, that the way in which uh, studying uh, or historical study or the social sciences uh, will also provide uh, human self-knowledge or self-understanding, that understanding the, the historical past and understanding it from the perspective of the Egyptians will also tell us something about our own perspective and the ways in which we are ourselves I- I embedded in a in a specific uh, culture and in a specific historical time which is not transparent to us automatically or independently of the fact that we study 
uh, the historical past by by invoking someone else's perspective because it's by invoking that perspective that we also get a view of our own and also I, I should add that I think it's obvious also that they both actually thought this was socially very important political and socially because what you need in a functioning society is a citizen's citizenry and people who uh, reflect on their own situation and understand their culture and I think they actually both thought uh, this was extremely important for democracy. Okay, I think that's all the time we have for today. Thank you all very much. Thank Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for listening. Philosophy Voiced is a production of the Center for Ethics at the University of Pardubice, Czech Republic.